it's almost like a new period of human history, like the Enlightenment, will imagine an entire design renaissance. So the internet is not evolving at random. There's a hidden goal driving the direction of all of the technology we make. Tech companies are actually taking over the world, and they're doing it with our government's help. Uh, so everybody acknowledges that these are valuable entities. They provide value in our life. Government does nothing as well or as economically as the private sector of the economy. But there's also seems to be a growing awareness that they have become so big that they have too much power now. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and is gravely to be regarded. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello and welcome back for another episode of Our Foundations. Today's episode will be part two in the interview that I did with Norman Horn, and I'll pretty much just pick up right where we left off. To give you a little bit of a reminder on what we were discussing, we had gotten into a discussion on centralization versus decentralization, and Norman had explained that, in his view, centralized power is always dangerous and should should always be avoided. And so I will play my response to that and the rest of this interview now. Yeah. And so uh, another one of the aspects that you've mentioned that I want to bring out a little more in relation to movements going on today would be that you keep saying that you can't have a centralized knowledge base. Knowledge can't be centralized. That's not something that can happen. You can't have full centralized knowledge. It's not possible. Um, I would say that that is something that is being challenged to a sense, not that people necessarily think that you can get all knowledge centralized in one source, but the movement towards data collection and surveillance and these types of things, that is a movement towards gathering at least as much knowledge as possible into a centralized uh, location so that you can then make decisions based on that data because you understand things because you have so much knowledge in one source. And, um, and so that's something that's going on and we'll get into that here in a few questions at the end. But the, the aspect of this that I wanted to get into was um, the technology side of things. You had the printing press that spread theological ideas and this happened in an intellectual movement at the time of the Reformation. This was very um, much on the intellectual side of things. You had theologians talking about these different ideas and passing their writings on and apologetics and things like this. And so today, the parallel to the printing press would be the internet. And yes, we do see that there are many ideas floating out there. I am making the parallel between theology of that time to uh, politics in our modern times, as I've mentioned before. And so we see a lot of political ideas that are going on in the internet sphere, in the World Wide Web, where people are talking about different aspects of political philosophy. There are different anti-establishment movements and all kinds of things going on. You even have uh, places like your site, um, the Libertarian Christian Institute there that is online sharing political ideas. And so we see a similar thing. The I, I guess the question that I have would be that um, could the internet spread these political ideas in an intellectual movement? Because at least the, major the majority of what I see online today is not something that I would uh, consider in the intellectual sphere. It's more of the entertainment soundbite sphere. And so if we did have the internet 
kind of really spark something, a more digital reformation in today's age, then I feel that that would have to have more depth than a tweet and a meme. That that would have to get a little further than that. And uh, do you uh, see that there might be potential for this in today's world? Or are we so... Are we just too long gone on this road to convenience and entertainment and these types of things? Um, is there any hope here? <laughs> so, so in other words, are we gonna are we gonna get smarter, or are we just gonna watch cat videos? I guess. Yeah, is, is the yeah. question. No, I mean, I, I, I certainly hope for the uh, for the former. <laughs> uh, yes, I think in in sh- the short answer is yes that there is a great analogy uh, to be made between something like the printing press and the spreading of ideas that way versus the internet and what we have now. I think we're really on the cusp of it because, you know, even, even the printing press, it took, you know, decades for things to really kind of get rolling in that respect. Um, and one might argue that we're already there. Like we're, we're just, in the end, we're going to all recognize this in retrospect. Uh, we'll, we'll look back and, and look toward, you know, wow, it was, was it that year that I mean, maybe this was the big turning point or whatnot. <laughs> I mean, maybe, who knows, maybe someday, maybe someday we'll look toward, you know, uh, 2008 and the, and the, the Ron Paul campaign as being like, that was the seminal moment that everything changed or something like that. Um, because there's so many things happened then, or maybe, or maybe they'll say it's 2006 or 2016. I don't know. I, I, it's hard for me to, to gauge that because it's going to be things that are, it'll be more up to the historians a hundred years from now to make some of those determinations. But yeah, these, there's no doubt that, uh, that the, the internet is, you know, the, is a huge factor in, uh, in the spread of, of ideas. And it's, a, I think it's a great thing because I mean, there are, I guess there, you could say there are going to be dangers on some level because, of course, there will be bad ideas to be spread as well. And it's up to those of us who have uh, a good understanding of the, of the theory and the practice of all of these things to really make the, the next level of impact and, uh, and, and both make popular those ideas and put them into practice in a new way. Yeah, that, that sounds hopeful. I like that. <laughs> Oh, good. I I would largely agree with you. (laughs) Um, So with this, a lot of these ideas that are being spread from a political point of view on the internet today, a lot of these are more anti-establishment movements. You've got things like conspiracy podcasts. I I have definitely covered some corruption and conspiracy on my show as well. Um, Yeah, very interesting. And um, I, I try to stick to more factual. Uh, there are no lizard people or aliens or anything like that. Oh, I'm that, sorry. Okay. That, oh, man, I always wanted to learn about the lizard people. Well, I, <laughs> I, I, actually, I actually did. Now, this is very interesting. I was doing research on the black nobility, which was a group of nobles um, around the time of, I think it was the 1500s, right around there. And you had the the black nobility and the white nobility and some supported the Pope and some supported the state, so to say the political powers locally. And I was trying to do more research on this because I've heard a few references, but I didn't know who they were. I didn't, couldn't find anything out about them. And, uh, so this led to listening to a podcast that was all about the black nobility. And, uh, <laughs> it, it got into how the black nobility still exists and uh, just to clarify, this isn't um, black as in a race. It was just the title given to them for various reasons. But um, 
you had this podcast that got to talking about how the black nobility still exists. It rules society. You've got, um, yes, if you've heard of, and I've actually covered this one, the secret society that Cecil Rhodes um, founded with the roundtable groups. And uh, (laughs) out of that spawned the Council on Foreign Relations and uh, Trilateral Commission, you know, all these types of things, uh, which historically did happen. Um, but, uh, in this podcast I was listening to, of course, it is all tied. The black nobility is at the head of this. And then you have all these different political bodies that are running the world, so to say, and, um, they fully believe this and that at the top, uh, ahead of the black nobility is in fact lizard people. Oh, and fantastic. they come from, That's yes, they come from know. under the earth. You know how all, <laughs> yeah, all religions, if you go to Greek mythology or Christianity, they believe that, you know, you have hell or Hades, you know, down below under the sure, earth. Sure. Well, you know, this is actually real. And that's where the lizard people come from. And oh. there's a breach somewhere where at least one got out. I think it was one. There might be more. Um, but yeah, then they proceeded to take over the whole world. And, uh, wow. and so, yes, y- you now at least have a little bit of information about the lizard people. Um, if you want any more, you're going to have to research that yourself. That's as far as I got. Um, it just, it, I couldn't go there. I think I'll probably, I think I'll probably keep reading my science books and some more NT right for theology and I'll, I'll leave that up to the, to the other folks, but (laughs) yeah, yeah. It's it's a very important topic, I'm sure, but Mm. yeah, I'm with you. That's, that's a little beyond uh, my scope, (laughs) but, but very interesting. I didn't expect to run across that while I was researching uh, medieval politics that didn't really. Uh, cross my mind, <laughs> but it happened. It happened. It, All the conspiracy podcasts I ever listened to, it never happened. And then I, you know, talk about the Renaissance time period and all of a sudden there it is. So there you go. It's interesting. Well, what do but, you know? <laughs> yeah. So um, going back to uh, being on track here, yeah, sure. the, um, <laughs> the ideas that are passed along on the internet are largely anti-establishment. And uh, this happens in the conspiracy side of things. It happens in the libertarian side of things. It happens on the left with like Bernie Sanders, for example, and the democratic socialist movement. And it's all over the place. It's all over the spectrum. There's a lot of anti-establishment stuff going on. Um, are there things that stand out to you that you see today going on in this um, anti-establishment fervor that's going on? Are there things that remind you of the Reformation and how that was an anti-establishment movement against the ultimate authority of their time, the church? Oh, man. You know, there there's certainly got to be some similarities. You know, you can, you can draw those out uh, in a variety of different ways, I imagine. The, the thing that comes to mind to me, though, is that, you know, what, the, especially as it pertains to those who are, you know, kind of anti-establishment, but kind of claim that democratic socialism level, is that they're, they're really just asking on some level for, for the state to heighten its activities in various ways. They're not really, they're not really anti-establishment per se, because on, because what they're not, they're just asking for a, like a, a totally different establishment to be put in, well, not even a totally different, but they're, they're asking for uh, an establishment to be revitalized uh, that looks more in line with the type of violence they're willing to commit, um, which I, I think that that kind of betrays why they're not really anti-establishment. They just, you know, oh, well, I don't like corporatism per se. Well, that's good. Like, how far are you willing to take that? If you're, if you don't, you don't like corporatism. Good. Do you have a problem with there being the, the essentially the monopolization that is the state in front of you? Oh, no, I don't get that. Well, then you don't understand corporatism yet, man. 
Like that's, that's, that's sort of the problem I got with it. I think that the, a lot of these folks, if they are well-meaning people, then perhaps they can be convinced and we should work to do that and help them to realize that their, that their, uh, their instincts against certain bad things happening in the world due to things like corporatism or something. Okay, good, good. Walk with that longer and start learning the implications that go beyond just, well, I don't want corporatism to take place. In, in this particular thing that I don't like. Maybe you should, maybe you should learn how to apply that in a variety of different ways. Uh, I just don't really tend to see that very often. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess it was similar in the Reformation, how you had those that weren't necessarily anti having an established church. They just wanted a slightly different established church and they wanted it to go in a slightly different direction and in some ways give it more, some ways less powers and, yeah, I guess. Yeah, so. and, and and that kind of again goes back to the idea that in some respects, like the the conflicts back then weren't really conflicts about religion as much as they were about the nature of power itself, and who gets the ability to say what and do what to whom. That's a political thing that that is goes far beyond uh, just telling somebody what to believe, but but literally controls how they are they act and how they get to live. Yeah. Yeah. And so with this parallel that I'm using, if the parallel plays out in a even roughly similar fashion, um, just like the historic church started to lose power in many different ways and their role in society was taken over in many aspects by other entities and you had the rise of the nation state. If you have a similar parallel play out today and these anti-establishment movements of modern times um, do have the result of the modern state losing some of its power and having political systems become a little more decentralized, um, what would be some of the benefits and what would be some of the dangers of this happening? You mentioned Brexit already, and yeah. um, you've mentioned the Civil War with secession. And so what are some of the pros and cons of this, um, since it is something that very well probably will happen at least to some degree. And so it would be good to kind of flesh out maybe what the good and bad could be of that. Yeah, I mean, the, some of the benefits would certainly include that the more decentralized power becomes, the, the less probable it is that uh, catastrophic events can occur, such as, you know, even world wars and whatnot. Uh, the, the more that, you know, the let's say that the, the period of, of uh, 1800 to 1913 or 1915 or so is really a, a, a period of the centralization of power into larger and larger political entities, uh, which kind of ultimately bubbled up and, and blew up into world wars, um, you know, starting, I mean, if we really want to put it this way, like there were the two world wars were really just, you know, uh, they were really one war that was uh, interspersed with a slight, uh, with a with a slight, uh, <laughs> a, 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 I guess you might say, a halftime. <laughs> yeah, I'd agree. <laughs> and, 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 you know, they didn't. They're they're very very much related to one another. Um, you know, so it, the the if you had more decentralization there, the ability for a world war to take place in, of that magnitude is much much lessened. Uh, so that's definitely a benefit that the more decentralized you get, uh, conflicts that occur tend to be more localized and restricted as opposed to worldwide and catastrophic. Uh, so that's, I think, one benefit. But then, you know, there could be there could be some um, some dangers in which, you know, you, you I think the, the over 
overarchingly the the benefits outweigh the potential dangers but there there you know there are some dangers i mean uh, you could have more localized conflicts means that perhaps uh in some cases those conflicts may could occur closer to uh to civilians in different ways that that may not have necessarily occurred in the past uh although there are some reasons to believe uh that even as it pertains to conflicts that uh, are that occur between decentralized bodies that there'll be incentives to actually try and not hit uh, on the, on uh, you know, villages or natives or, or uh, innocent people, but rather to, to try and, you know, to, to put that away rather than with the larger world wars and whatnot, where, you know, what, what, what happens? Well, you drop aid bombs on cities, you know, and why do you do that to break the will of the people? And so on and so forth. So I think there's there. I mean, you can go both ways. I mean, on some level, I suppose. But I think that it's pretty clear that the uh, the benefits of decentralization outweigh the dangers. Yeah. Yeah. And I would say that war would be one of the biggest travesty of modern times. And so I would definitely agree with you that anything we can do to limit the amount of war that goes on and violence and death and human sacrifice, um, the more we can limit that, the better. So um, uh, with that, if if we did have the more uh, the nation state of what we have today, if the nation state did lose some of its political power and there was a breaking up of this to some degree, it might be large, it might be small, but a little more of a decentralization movement that actually took hold, then uh, by my estimation, at least more than likely you would have someone from the corporate realm that would step up and kind of fill some of these gaps because as you have the nation state losing power and things becoming more localized and regional, um, you you still are likely going to have powers that want control over large territories or large groups of people. And you already have um, corporations building smart cities like Sidewalk Labs from Google or some different examples like this. And you see corporations that are starting to fill some of these roles of the state already. So if we did have the state becoming a little more decentralized, losing some of its power, more than likely you would have someone else uh, stepping up to fill this void, kind of like the nobility did in the time of the Reformation when the church lost some of its power, the nobility stepped up, you ended up with this uh, more broad political entity, the nation state that was more centralized with a lot more authority. And so if you had a similar thing happen today, um, by, by my um, personal feelings, at least, um, the example here would be that the corporate world would step up and you would have more, I would call it economic councils or a technocracy that would come into being where you would have um, entities that are international, that are dealing with international issues. Think um, global warming. That's something you already mentioned, climate change, whatever they're Uh calling it at this point in time. Um, And so, you know, that's a worldwide problem or poverty or education from a worldwide perspective, there are a lot of these worldwide problems that are going around. Um, You've got these virus outbreaks that happen every few years coming out of China, usually. Um, These are worldwide pandemics and a worldwide scare. And so 
If you have nation states starting to break away from some of the established unions, such as the European Union, or decentralization movements within nation states, then there likely will be people and there will be a demand within the public to have some groups that are um, taking care of some of these worldwide issues. And so with this, we would get the benefit that I think you and I would both want of more localized political power, more decentralization from that standpoint. Um, but more than likely, the cost would be that there probably would be some more worldwide entities. Think maybe the um, uh, the United Nations would probably be a good example here. Not necessarily that that would be the entity, but it's one that kind of fills that role right now to some degree. And so if you did have that, um, what would you say would be some of the uh, pros and cons that, um, that you would like about having that system where you do have more independence, liberty, um, regionalized political power, but you also have a more worldwide body that's making kind of more broad um, decisions, probably related to resources and how those are used and acquired and distributed and things like this. Um, uh, what would be your opinion on something like that? Hmm. Well, I might need I might be misinterpreting you. So correct me if I'm wrong. But it kind of sounds like what you're saying is, well, what what happens if you know we end up seeing. Uh, some kind of more of like a, a, a simultaneous rising of a centralized entity of power, something like a United Nations, and then a but a decentralization of certain things at local levels. And and I is that is that kind of fair to say? Uh, mostly, yeah, that you would have a decentralization of the nation state, some more local powers, um, and that would then spawn a rising of a centralized force that would be, okay. I would say, something that would be a new entity. Um, yeah. The United Nations, just an example, but um, okay. I would say probably a more technocratic um, economic council or group yeah. of corporations that band together and make these worldwide decisions, something like that. I think I think the key there would be like it, that might have a potential of, of being possibly better. But I think the the key would be is that to what extent uh, does the, the kind of centralized entity uh, have toward essentially wielding, wielding force violence against others. And I, I think that's, I think that's really kind of be the key here. And, and here's kind of why I say that. For instance, there might be a you could conceive of a of, of a of a kind of situation where maybe there is a, a sort of centralized entity that deals with something like I don't know. Let's just say standards. Let's say let's say it's like measurement standards, for instance, yeah. uh, and that and that you know something on the order of like what NIST acts as uh, for the United States, uh, you know, as a whole, uh, qua the United States per se. You know, the NIST is the National Institute of Standards and Technology, and and uh, through NIST and other actually other international organizations, for instance, uh, there was a redefinition of the metric system uh, back last year. I think it was in like May of last year, and it was just an update. I wouldn't even say redefinition; it was just an update um, because they it, it was all around universalized constants, and and this is all very you know kind of technical, scientific type stuff, uh, and it's very interesting. Um, because it makes a lot of sense. Uh, but but that's like, as it pertains to, you know, the use of force per se, well, that's not really what it's there to do. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't uh, have the capacity of like, you know, uh, waltzing over to your local Walmart and then, you know, making, you know, ch double checking all of their rulers. And then if they don't, they'll take them and slap you on the wrist. 
uh, it's not the way it works. <laughs> you know, so is there is it conceivable you might have something like that? Well, maybe. Um, or is it going to be something like, I don't know, the European Union or, or the United Nations uh, or even the United States federal government, which is something, you know, which is a federalized federalized entities, uh, essentially, that have the capacity to, you know, wield armies and uh, and, and execute force against other people. And so on the one hand, you might have an organization that, that works together and tries to help harmonize certain things together. Uh, and that basis of interacting peacefully on the on, on in order to try and, you know, help other people to, to do their jobs better and, and serve other people better like that can work. Uh, but if it's on the basis of, well, we're just trying to centralize more and more things together so that, you know, we have different we have better and, and more unified ways of waging war against other people. Well, then that's probably a bad thing, you know. And and so I kind of think that there's it, it sort of like, well, if, if what you mean by it is this, then maybe I'll agree. And then if what you mean by it is on the other hand is this, eh, then that's not so good. So, yeah. I, you know, so there are ways in which you could conceive of there being, you know, uh, decision-making capacities that help other people um, because they don't involve, you know, force, but rather just, uh, you know, some, something entirely different uh, versus, you know, okay, well, if we're just doing this so we can have a bigger army, eh, I'm not sure that's a good idea. Yeah, that's pretty clear yeah. that. Well, I would I would say that I think the most realistic um, possibility here would be that it would be something that would be more economic in nature than forceful in nature. That, that there might be some um, some aspects of the ability to use force against other nation states or entities or whatever. The, the United Nations does have that possibility now, um, but. More, if you look into the uh, literature of uh, technocratic movements, the technocracy movement of the 1920s and modern like sustainable development movement that is largely the exact same thing. Um, sure. Yeah, a lot of that has to do... Smart cities. Correct, correct. Like yes, the smart cities, gathering all this data, using data and information to make decisions to rule a society, so social engineering... Um, yeah, a lot of this stuff where you take the ideas of Plato's Republic and you infuse technology and you have, yes, this ideal. And um, so the one benefit here, and I would agree with you on this, is that more than likely it would be economic power that would be wielded and leveraged. And so if they are maybe controlling energy, that's something that is usually referred to um, in all of these different aspects that you would control energy, the distribution of energy, or have some sort of new uh, universal basic income that would be based on the amount of energy that would be used. Um, instead of having markets maybe decide some of the worldwide prices, you would have um, how much energy went into making said product, and you could allocate some of the energy credits that you got as part of your universal basic income towards this. And, you know, all of this uh, is around uh, using resources sustainably and controlling the outflows and inflows of energy. Think of the smart grid and smart meters on people's houses, smart cities. Um, all of that it basically enables this to be something that would be um, used more than likely by a more technocratic council of sorts. And so, yes, I would say that 
that's the most likely scenario to me is that um, you just continue with these current trends of building out smart cities, of corporations having a more dominant role in deciding these things, probably some conflicts between corporations and nation states that you actually do have a lot of now. You have Facebook under investigation and Google getting fined, Apple getting fined by uh, various different nation states for various reasons. And ultimately, these corporations nowadays are they're worldwide entities. They're Yes, they're established in one specific country, and they have one specific location that's usually their headquarters, but realistically, um, they aren't necessarily tied to one specific country. Most of these international, large international corporations are, they're worldwide entities. And so if they did um, declare their independence, so to say, and uh, maybe give a few representatives from each one of these or each sector and form some sort of council to make decisions, to set standards, these types of things, um, I, I think that is a... Uh, Definitely, at the very least, a possibility. And if we're looking at this parallel between what happened during the time period of the Reformation, well, the church did lose a lot of its power, just like the nation state might lose some of its power. And you had um, the theological and religious aspects were more localized and personal choice, just like maybe the political aspects um, in the future might be more localized and personal choice. And you had the nobility that stepped up and formed these new entities, the nation state that took more overall power over a much broader geographic location and more broad markets. And so I would say the same thing might possibly happen where you have, let's say, an economic council that takes more power over a more broad geographic location such as the world, or at least maybe <laughs> the West. Um, sure, that sure. That's very likely, possible at least. Um, and so with this, I, I guess what I would say the hope would be is that, yes, we would have more localized control. Um, at least to a large degree, you would probably have market forces um, at play in a much greater way if you didn't have the federal regulations and um, the federal aspect coming into play here. There'd probably be a lot of free trade zones and things like this. And so you would get a lot of what you want. And I, I think I would agree with you a lot on that. But the the one challenge I do want to bring up, because I, I questioned your um, religious stance for a little bit on scripture, but um, this is your stance on markets. There are weaknesses in having markets control things and manage things. You have um, the theory that everybody makes economically sound decisions and they're going to do what they're incentivized to do. And this all works out great. I've done whole episodes on um, anarcho-capitalism. And so I have fully explored that idea and um, I get it. And I largely agree with it. Um, but in reality and historically, we see that some people are motivated by more than wealth and profits and normal market incentives. Some people want power or revenge or vengeance or other things. They just want to take down a corporation at all costs or a person at all costs. And it doesn't really matter what they're economically incentivized to do within the market system they're operating in. They're going to do what they're going to do for other reasons. And so um, yeah, if you did... Men are evil. I mean, uh, that's, correct. Uh, we yes, do evil yes. things. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah that would be uh, what I would say would be one of the risks is that if you did have decentralized um, decentralization movements take hold and actually take effect and power become more 
localized where you have maybe uh, cities like these sanctuary cities are already doing this. They're rebelling against the federal laws. You have the marijuana laws that are being repealed in some states. You even have things like um, hallucinogenic mushrooms being legalized in just individual cities. And so you see these movements that are going on where more localized principalities are taking some of that political power away from the nation state. And so, yeah, my worry, though, is that in doing so, you are enabling larger forces to um, maybe take some power positions from a worldwide perspective, as well as you have some of the negatives associated with um, a market-based system where people aren't always working according to their incentivized structure. Um, So what do you think? Do you think having a more, let's look at a local um, level, would you think having free and open markets, even with these negatives that I just um, mentioned, do you still think that would at least be better than having the political centralization that we have now on a federal level that just manages absolutely everything? Yeah, and I, I, I do think that's the case. And and for one, for one, you know, we could say, well, you know, people don't it's because people are evil that this, uh, that this, de- you know, if we just de- decentralize things and they're just going to act it out there. But the f- kind of the, the, the counter to that though, is that, well, you don't solve the problem of evil in this way. We don't, we don't solve the problem of decentralized evil by centralizing it all into one spot and just hoping it doesn't happen there. I mean, there, there's like, there's a, there's a, there's a grand risk at that point of w- if you concentrate all of the possible uh, ways in which, you know, evil can be constructed and acted upon into, you know, in various ways and in into that one, uh, that one entity that you end up invariably having that become the, the, you know, the, in, the inception point of a, uh, of a variety of different, even bigger evils kind of coming out of that. So practically speaking, yeah, you're, you're, it's true, uh, that, that there are going to be people that are going to do evil in the decentralized format, um, but it's precisely because of that that you can't have it all all the power centralized into one location. You know that that just uh, it's kind of a, a slight modification on uh, on James Madison's reasoning for why uh, the federal government uh, you know should exist or why government should exist. You know he he said that well because men are not angels, uh, you know we we need a government to con- we need uh, some sort of constraint in the form of the government to to do so. Uh, but, you know, the, the slight modification of that is, well, it's precisely because men are not angels that you shouldn't centralize the power of, 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 uh, of lethal force, essentially, uh, into, into a, an entity that, has, that can exact it upon all the people that you're saying are evil. <laughs> and, and they, you know, and of course they try to answer that on some level by saying, well, this is why we put laws in place and so on and so forth. And that's great. Yeah, I understand that. Um, and we, and, and then there's, you know, a variety of different debates that can, that can happen from that, which leads one to kind of, I think though, favor the decentralized model above the centralized one in this respect that the constraining of evil actually happens at a greater level through decentralization than via centralization. Now, as it pertains to the technocratic solutions that you mentioned, one of the things that's interesting about the, these sorts of, uh, models or ways of living in this respect is that 
contrary to what we typically have with the ideas of nation states and having geographical boundaries defining the way in which that people can move about and associate themselves with different types of entities uh, that and, and uh, whether that's like, for instance, in the federal government in the United States, you know, we we have a lot of freedom to move about to the varying individual states within the United States of America federally, per se. Right. Um, it's actually, you know, main uh, with the with the more diffuse uh, technocratic stuff that you're kind of describing. Um, I think there will probably like there's the, there'll be probably a series of arguments to be had about uh essentially the the limits of size and scope that those types of entities can take i mean google cannot rule the world it might be able to start a smart city but it can't run the whole thing it's not smart enough to do so despite the fact that it has more knowledge at its fingertips through its own devices than almost anything else that's ever existed it can't run it uh and it knows and it knows that uh that nobody can fully run a smart city on their own I mean, for that matter, no, <laughs> no typical city can run themselves, run itself on its own. It just doesn't work like that um, because that's that's just the way that's the way of life. I mean, like you can't w once you get to a certain size, those things become unwieldy and unmanageable. Um, so I don't I, I don't think that that's that that's too much of a worry that those entities will just get so large and that they'll that they will not be, um, uh, you know, that that they won't be manageable at that point. Uh, it's just not, I just don't think it's going to happen. Uh, it, you know, is it possible? Yes. Likely? No. That's what I'm, that's kind of where I'm going with that. But furthermore, even if they did, uh, even if, you know, even if they become, let's say, moderately large, uh, the difference between the modern nation state and those types of institutions is that it's much more easy to exit in these cases than in the nation state's case. Case in point here is that if, for instance, if you want to leave the United States, you want to expatriate, now you'd have to forfeit quite a lot of property in order to do that. And in fact, you certainly cannot exit the United States Union, per se, and actually hold on to any physical property here. Uh, suddenly, you would you would be subject to a massive amount of, of, of taxation and potentially seizure uh, of your property in order to do what you wanted to do. And that's something that can't really happen uh, so nearly as well in these types of other scenarios where from the outset, those technocratic entities will uh, will have to be able to contract with you from the outset into what is theirs and what is yours, as opposed to the nation state, which basically claims that everything within it is, it, is its own. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Have you ever looked into Agenda 21 or Agenda 2030? I, I haven't in, in grand detail. No, I really okay. haven't. Uh, one of the uh, rough plans there is that eventually the idea would be that people would uh, migrate to more densely populated urban areas and then let the natural environment go back to being naturalized. And um, one of the theories would be that maybe they could leverage uh, nationally owned land 
and that they would then control this land and you would have people in these highly populated urban areas and they would be kind of sectioned off and let the environment go back to being natural and therefore we are environmentally friendly and you have (laughs) less, yes, yes. So you have uh, less people um, reproducing and you have population going down and that is something that is happening and that has a positive impact on the environment. So to say you have the anti-natalist movement that uh, I had never heard heard of until about a year ago, um, <laughs> but it does exist. And it, it is actually much more popular than you would think. And so, yeah, there's these things that are happening. And so you would have, yes, a lot more control, so to say, in many different ways, but you would also have the ability, and I wouldn't say a corporation, I wouldn't say like Google, Facebook, and Amazon team up and rule the whole world. But I would say that maybe some representatives from these companies or these sectors get together to form a council and all of the companies would independently agree to adhere to whatever this council decides, because it would be in their best interest as worldwide corporations to have set standards and to have rules and have goals and to put on a good face um, from a PR perspective if they do declare their independence from a nation state, you know, you've kind of got to band together or else you're going to be screwed as a corporation. And so um, I could see something like that happening. And the leverage would then be something like land, for example, you mentioned ownership. Well, uh, people are going more and more towards renting things and not owning things. And I've made the argument many times that even if you completely own, so to say, your house, you still have to get permission to remodel it. You have to get permission to demolish it. You have to get permission to add to your land. You have to pay rent for it every single year or the state takes it away from you. And so that's one of the issues is depending on how you define ownership and what that implies, uh, we might not own a whole lot anyway. And so it wouldn't be as hard as um, some people might think for that lack of ownership to be leveraged against a group of people. And so, yeah, there's these, I don't know, you, you've got something like um, like capitalism, for example, that is looked at as a modern evil by many, especially on the left. Um, and uh, to in many ways, it, it did contribute to many evils in society. I would agree with that. Um, but capitalism did bring us the world that we have today, a lot of progress in a lot of different ways. And I would imagine whatever is coming, um, from this, uh, digital reformation that we're going through with this influence of technology and data and, um, anti-establishment movements and, uh, corporations, um, gaining more power and control over different markets and different aspects of society. I would say that whatever comes out of this, whatever the new entity is, or the new system is, um, you can make parallels to maybe capitalism or parallels to the nation state, you know, whatever, we don't know what's going to happen in the future, but whatever does happen, I think, most of us probably do see that there there is the potential for some major change, some major shifts in society um, from a very global perspective. And that's something that is being pushed and we are trending towards. And so with this, I, I think that there will be some positive aspects. And uh, my guess would be some of these decentralization aspects of political power and the use of force. 
I think that would be a very good positive thing that would come to be. Um, also, maybe a rise in the use of technology. And there are pros and cons to that, obviously. Um, and then you would have some negative things where you might have some aspects of power, maybe more economic power or power over resource allocation or distribution might be more centralized. And that might be a negative thing. And so, yeah, it's hard to judge because, number one, we can't tell the future and we have no clue what's going to happen. Um, but then number two, even if we did know exactly what the new system would be, there's no telling what the effects would be on society. And so um, I guess kind of closing out with a lot of these different ideas here, um, what would you say would be some important things that people would consider that they would maybe live out in their own personal lives? We mentioned at the beginning of this interview that um, the early Christians wanted to live out their faith and live out these ideals and live out their religion and actually do it. And you mentioned how you would have someone walk with you so you could show them by example what it meant to be a Christian. And so if, if we transfer that to the political realm and to a more personalized location um, within the listener and uh, whoever else might hear some of these ideas— what would you say would be important for them to learn about and participate in? And uh, what what do you think people should, or how do you think people should internalize some of these different um, shifts that are happening in society and some of these uh, ideas that we're throwing around here that um, might make someone uh, question a lot of different things in a lot of different ways? Yeah, that's uh, it's a great call to action uh, right there. Uh, I mean, first and foremost... I would say that, you know, seek to understand, uh, go out there and start to learn as much as you can, uh, in a, in a lot of different, in a lot of different fields in a lot of different ways, uh, to, to wit, I mean, for what it's worth, I mean, what we've been talking about here involves, you know, stuff that I've grown to understand over the course of well over a decade, uh, almost two decades at this point of thinking about economics and theology and political philosophy and whatnot. But, you know, that's not even what I primarily do. I mean, I happen to, you know, have a nonprofit that, I, that I'm the president of, and I get to talk to a lot of people such as yourself, interact with a lot of interesting people and learn from them. But, like, my profession is engineering. I'm a professional engineer. Like I go around and do scientific research on a daily basis and try to solve the weirdest problems that I can before breakfast. Uh, so it, that's, you know, just, I, I guess not to toot my own horn per se, but it's just like, I think it's important to go out there, learn as much as you can and start talking to people about it. Uh, so there's, you know, there's a value in that. I've said before, in fact, this actually comes to mind is that, you know, if all we accomplish even as a libertarian Christian Institute is to raise the level of discussion uh, amongst Christians today about the nature of the church and the state, then I think we will have done a good thing for the, for, for this, for this nation, for this world. Uh, I think that's a great thing. And so to that end, I would just keep encouraging people to learn, 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 uh, study history, do things like what you're doing. I mean, with this, with this, our, our foundation series, I mean, what a terrific idea to go and, and explore this, uh, the, the very basics of, of who we are as a society, as the human race itself, and try to understand, you know, what its trajectory is. Uh, and then of course, you know, I would be, I would, I would be, uh, selling, I would be selling a, all, all of us short here by, uh, by, if I didn't say that, you know, 
the greatest thing that I can, of course, recommend for anyone to do is to try to understand their relationship with God more than anything else. And so that's a, you know, that would be my, my final word there is to seek, seek to understand that. And so many things will fall into place. It's, it's a kind of a truism that the best we can do oftentimes in this world is, is to create one improved unit. That's me. And I hope that, uh, you know, that you can take that upon yourself as well as a listener and, uh, and to, to just focus on, you know, improving your own, uh, your own state of mind, your own ability to impact the world and the rest will follow. Well, I guess with that, my guest today has been Norman Horn, and I think he wrapped this up very nicely. So thank you very much. Yes. Thank you very much for being on the show and participating and um, giving some of your expertise in these different areas and bouncing off these um, sometimes it feels like random ideas. (laughs) And I really appreciate your input and you doing this with me. Well, Josh, it's a distinct honor to be here. Thanks for having me. So although I said that was the end of the interview and we said our goodbyes, that was actually not the end. Uh, Norman and I ended up talking a little more after the recording was finished, and I wish I would have had it still recording, but I did hit record a little ways through our conversation and was able to capture a portion of that. So just to fill in the blank space in between, we talked a little bit more about technocracy specifically. Norman asked me to clarify clarify a few things. And when I did, he figured out that he was thinking more of a technopoly. And that would be based on a book that he actually recommended by Neil Postman called Technopoly. And that one talks about basically how tech companies are taking over in one sense and goes into that type of stuff. And so as I explained, technocracy, and I referenced the book by William Henry Smith by that name, technocracy, and explained what that meant, that it was not a political, necessarily not a political group or a political system, but rather one that is much more scientific, one that uses data and science and facts to make the best decisions about a society, and it leaves the politics to the local political rulers and this type of stuff. And I went on and explained technocracy um, in that definition. And so he said that there were some things that he probably would have brought out from that and would have commented more on, but he wasn't exactly thinking the same way as what I was thinking. And so he had mentioned that and we started talking a little bit more about that. And that is something I do want to mention that Almost every single guest I've had on in all of these interviews, both prior to the airing of this interview and the ones that are upcoming, most people are not really quite aware of what a technocracy is. And so more than likely, you, the listener, are probably not extremely aware of what technocracy really means and what that really is. So I'm going to get into that a little more. Maybe when these interviews are over, I might do an episode that clarifies and explains that a little clearer and all in one place. Or I might um, fit in another interview at the end where I find somebody that is more of an expert and knows a lot about that movement, the technocracy 
technocracy movement and what's going on with that in relation to the origins of the movement, as well as the more modern versions such as sustainable development and these types of things. So that's probably going to be upcoming. And I do realize that you may not have heard of that very often, or you may not be very clear on what that is. And obviously, many of the guests that I've had on are not very clear on that. So that that is a bit of an issue. I know in the very first interview that I had with Pete Quinones, he was thinking I was talking about corporations taking over the world. And that's not at all what a technocracy is, even though it is probably in today's age, something that would consist of people and groups from the corporate sphere creating some sort of overall group that manages many of the aspects of global society. But it's it's definitely not corporations taking over the world in the sense that you would probably think of it when I say that. And you would not have these companies in the form that they are today making all of the decisions all around the world. That's not what technocracy is. And so I do want to clarify that because that has been an issue. And so to catch you up in the context of what Norman and I were discussing at the point in time where we are about to pick up again, we were talking about technocracy and how that works and how these groups and these people would be using data to figure out what decisions to make, how to allocate resources, how to deal with things like climate change and viruses and global issues that come up. And so we talked about how um, the way that they do this is through mass surveillance and mass data collection, and you bring all that data together, and you can then have the information you need, at least this is what the technocrats say, to make the right decisions and to govern society in the best way possible from a perspective of dealing with things like social engineering and a sustainable use of resources and energy allocation and output and things of this nature. So uh, Norman is going to jump in here as soon as I stop talking and continue on with uh, a little bit of an objection to this idea. So of course, you know, just aspects of uh, climate management and whatnot that are purported to be uh, solvable through just the use of data and whatnot. Well, how do we know that that's correct when you know, there's there's certainly are issues of, of just the way in which that data is biased, the way in which the models are set up and so on and so forth. It's there's some big problems there. Um, anyway, there's a great new book. If you're interested in in these topics, you should probably take a look at it's from the Cato Institute called uh, Scientology. Yeah, Scientocracy. <laughs> OK. And uh, and the, the the use and abuse of science in setting public policy, I think it's the subtitle. Uh, Terrence Mike, no, Terrence Keeley and Patrick Michaels are the editors of the book. It's like 10 chapters. It's great stuff. Uh, huh. Yeah. I'll look that up. Yeah. Well, yeah. And you mentioned that, yeah, you never have all the data. Well, then the obvious answer and solution would be, well, we just need more data. And so yeah, that's always the claim. Well, it right? is. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But there are people that believe that, that if we just, you know, can monitor all electricity going through the grid and we can monitor all the traffic on a street and we can monitor every financial transaction through a digital currency and (laughs) all of these Mm -hmm. different things. It's like, well, then we'll have all the data. Then we can make the best decisions and our experts can decide those. 
Yeah, but like what man, that can man, there's so much it, it kind of begs the question though, is like, well, how how do you anticipate being able to use that data to make a better decision? Because what led to those the events taking place do not necessarily um give you the power to understand and make a decision based on, you know, that for what? Uh, for what purpose? You know, I get I don't know. That's just there's some yeah, it's, it's a it's well, a you've got thing. the brave new world idea of, you know, as long as people are content and entertained and they have all their basic needs being met, they are satisfied with their lot in life. Then what does it matter? <laughs> Those in control can do whatever they want. And everybody is living the perfect ideal life. Mm, yeah, I guess that's a uh, it, <laughs> it begs it begs for a theory, though, as to what 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 does constitute an ideal life? I mean, just because. Right. And I, I think you're probably probably thinking along the same lines, too. Right. Is that just because somebody is getting what they want doesn't mean they have an ideal life. Yeah. They, they go off of the pleasure pain morality since, you know, they yeah. don't go off of the religious morality. Well, but moreover, like how can how can it be the case that the political entity should be able to decide? Well, OK, based on what theory uh, should allow sh- should make it possible for us to decide what is the ideal life for everybody else? Like, how it's a market-based decision. decision, though. It's market-based because people want to be entertained. They want to be taken care of. Oh, that might they be want great... to be told what to do. Yeah, I don't know if they want to be told what to do. Often, not in those words. Great. Sometimes, sometimes in yeah, sometimes and sometimes not. Yeah, They're, yeah. I think people largely want to have a government and a state, someone that makes these broad decisions and carries out the things that they want done and forced upon other people that they're not willing to do themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. They want someone to educate them, to take care of their kids. They yeah. want someone to make sure that the news that they hear is not fake news. Someone needs to regulate <laughs> that, you know, because, because right. they can't, you know, take it upon themselves to educate themselves or educate their own kids mm-hmm. or figure out if something's true or false or, you know, anything else. Don't in the make world. me think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's, you yeah. know, unfortunately, if you took like the masses and gave them what they wanted, I think it would be entertainment and convenience above all else. And hey, let some other group, you know, manage worldwide matters. Who cares? You know, as long as we get what we want, I get what I want, then I'm good. Yeah. So, you know, it's not really a positive thing, but yeah. <laughs> unfortunately, yeah. I think that's kind of the state of society now. You're not but, wrong. Yeah. There's a yeah, lot of it. Yeah. There's movements like the libertarian movement Ta-da. and yep. like the Christian movement. And yeah, yeah you, you've got lots of ideologies that are against this idea. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we'll see if, if the Internet allows us to make progress on this and start a revolution that is peaceful. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. All right. All right. Well, hey, it's great talking with you. It's been fun. It has been. Thanks for coming on. So that will now officially conclude this interview and this episode. And I will wrap things up by saying again, thank you for all of you listeners for listening and also for leaving ratings and reviews and for your support, specifically for the patrons who financially support this podcast and end up covering the majority of the fees associated with me producing this podcast. Thank you very much to you all for your specific support. And also, I guess I will mention here that I have added a little bit of a change on the Patreon page. And since I'm doing these interviews and I'm doing them in a format where they're split into multiple sections, for those that are patrons and are supporters on the Patreon website, I am posting the interviews 
in their entirety. So I'm going ahead and posting every portion of the interview all at once. And that way, if you want to just listen to it all at once in order, then you can. Or if you don't want to, you don't have to. So that's just, uh, I figured a little added bonus, added perk that might be something that patrons would be interested in and will add a little bit of convenience and optionality for you guys. And I'll also continue to try to put out some extra content. I have not been doing a whole lot of that so far, mainly because these interviews and transitioning into season two has been extremely time consuming and there has been a lot involved there, but I am getting to that. I will get to that and there will be more bonus content that I will release for the patrons as well. So the final thank you will go to the Libertarian Christian Institute and to Norman Horn specifically. Thank you for providing me with you with this resource and coming on and doing this interview with me. Thank you for having me on your show as well. And I believe the plan is for this interview to also air under the Libertarian Christian podcast feed as well, so that their listeners get to partake in this conversation that we had and hear all of this different discussion that we laid out, because a lot of these things are definitely things that are covered on the Libertarian Christian podcast. They do talk about both theology and political theory, and they get into all of these types of things, just like Norman and I did in this interview. So thank you, LCI, for partnering with me and collaborating with me on this. I greatly appreciate that. And thank you to all the listeners and supporters for all you do as well. Now, as we come back in the next episode, I am going to start a series with some history podcasters. So this will conclude the religious hosts that I have had on, the more religious and theologically minded experts. And so the next two interviews will both be with people that do historical podcasts. I've got two people that are very good, in my opinion. We've got the host of the History of the Papacy podcast, Stephen Guerra. And then after that, we will have the host of the Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast, Benjamin Jacobs. And both of them are very good. Their podcasts are extremely good. They are detailed. They get into a lot of interesting content, and it's all about the time period and the topics that we are bringing out and I am discussing in season two. So they were perfect to have on. And with that, they ended up being extremely long interviews. So those will be three or even four part interviews that I will post starting after this interview here. And so that's what's coming up. We'll get into more of the historical side and still bring up all these same topics that we we have been going over with these other guests. I hope you will find those as interesting as I have and enjoy it as much as I have. And with that, I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.